before MAC address randomization, it was possible to use the Wi-Fi radio in people's phones to basically track them from place to place. And there were companies that would aggregate and sell this information to be able to do all sorts of marketing stuff and creepy targeting stuff that frankly exposed a lot of people's personal information just because they were carrying around a device that was inadvertently leaking data. Hey everyone. We recorded this episode remotely and the sound quality isn't up to our normal standards, but the content is great and we learned a lot. So we'll be presenting it with our apologies for the audio problems. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Verona Security Tools podcast. Today, our guest is Matthew Van Hoff, a Wi-Fi security researcher who's responsible for poking holes in some of the standards that we all use in Wi-Fi and also responsible for finding some of the flaws in the new upcoming WPA3 standard. Uh, Matthew, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So for anyone who hasn't heard of the attacks that you've documented, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and where you work? So I am Mati. I'm a postdoc at New York University in Abu Dhabi. And uh, basically during my PhD, I'm now postdoc, I've been researching the security of uh, network protocols in general. But one thing I really love is wireless protocols. So I've also focused a lot on uh, Wi-Fi security. And what got you started being interested in Wi-Fi research? Was there something in particular that made you want to pick this as a field of study? Well, one reason why I like uh, Wi-Fi security is because a lot of people use it. It's all around us. And it's also because as an attacker, you know, it's an interesting part target. You don't need to be physically close. Uh, you can do it from a distance. So it always intrigued me. And I was able to explore this topic during my bachelor thesis at uh, university. And from there on, my interest only grew further. And what kind of research do you do presently? Uh, what's the scope of your research or what kinds of things are you looking for? So my research in general is about uh, network uh, security. Um, specifically, I look at whether protocols are implemented correctly or whether they uh, misuse uh, cryptographic primitives, for example. Um, and this is both on Wi-Fi, but also on other network protocols. So I also try to look at, for example, TLS or WireGuard as well. So I'm interested in network security in general, though I love to focus on uh, Wi-Fi security and implementation issues and automatically trying to detect uh, flaws in implementations of protocols. So when hackers look at flaws, there's all sorts of kind of scopes that we talk about when we find vulnerabilities. And one type of scope might be you find out that a particular manufacturer has made a mistake in a particular model of phone. And that's, you know, serious for owners of that particular model of phone. But that kind of that kind of vulnerability or that kind of problem would be fairly limited in scope. The kind of stuff you're researching is not a flaw that might be in one particular phone. You're researching the kind of flaws that might be in every phone that implements the Wi-Fi protocol, which is basically every phone. Is that more or less fair to say? Yes, I think that would be a fair thing uh, to say. So... The idea is also that uh, we look at a specification of a protocol and try to look for design flaws as well. So that's, in fact, the second part of the research I do. And of course, if you then find a flaw really in the specification of Wi-Fi itself, then every device that implements this protocol will be vulnerable as well. So in that sense, you can have a, you can have a large impact. Do you know roughly how many devices that is? Oh, I, I have no idea. You know, this is always things they say in marketing <laughs> materials where I don't always trust the numbers. Uh, but one thing I do know is that nowadays Wi-Fi is the most common method for people to get access to the internet. So it's no longer that you know a wired network is the default. The default way people get internet is through Wi-Fi. So that's hugely important because we pretty much all use this standard unless we're physically wired into a computer. That already solved a, lot, a, a pretty big part of this question, but why is your research important? What parts of people's everyday lives does the kind of thing that you're uncovering actually touch on and have an impact on? So I would say it's uh, whenever two computers are communicating with each other, and this can be your smartphone or your laptop or your even your desk computer, when it's... Um, sending your data over the internet. And essentially what I checked during my research is whether that data is transmitted in a secure way. 
And for the case of wireless security, this is quite important because it's very easy for someone nearby to try to uh, sniff the traffic, to try to see what your device is sending. Um, so yeah, in, in general, we try to look for mistakes where your data isn't sent uh, securely. Well, this is a really good segue into the first piece of your research I wanted to ask about, because while we think about wireless security as maybe, you know, your computer connecting to your home router and somebody intercepting something that you were, maybe your credit card information or something like that, the threat I actually am most interested in, and I think is the most fascinating, is mobile devices and privacy. I know that for a long time, before MAC address randomization, it was possible to use the Wi-Fi radio in people's phones to basically track them from place to place. And there were companies that would aggregate and sell this information to be able to do all sorts of marketing stuff and creepy targeting stuff that frankly exposed a lot of people's personal information just because they were carrying around a device that was inadvertently leaking data. Could you explain a little bit about MAC address randomization and why it affects pretty much everybody with a mobile phone? Yeah, so that's indeed a very interesting topic. So basically before MAC address randomization, the problem is that your smartphone was constantly searching for Wi-Fi networks. And it means that say every 30 seconds or every minute, your device is sending uh, a signal asking for nearby networks. Hey, is there a network here? And all these requests, they contain a unique MAC address, basically a number that uniquely identifies your device. Um, because your phone is sending that unique identifier every minute, it becomes very easy to track you. And the way MAC address randomization tries to prevent this is by, uh, say, every minute changing this MAC address so that you can no longer be tracked using this uh, unique identifier. Um, that way, your privacy will be better protected. So just to kind of scope out this problem for the average person, one way this could be abused prior to MAC address randomization is a store could record you walking around that store, combine that data with information from other stores, and basically get a complete picture of every store that you were going to, as well as which section of the store you were spending time in. So this information could be used to build a profile of you. And basically, that profile would be sold to kind of God knows who uh, at some point, because the information that's possible to be correlated from this one unique identifier is really limitless. Anybody who's listening in on this unencrypted uh, information that's being sent anytime you're walking around could potentially identify where you're going. So you don't need to be a government agency with a warrant or some sort of, sort of super spy to track people from their mobile phones. Instead, you just need to literally listen for unencrypted signals that are broadcasting a unique number tied to your phone, and you can pretty much track that phone anywhere. Now, if you flip that and maybe say you have an abusive spouse or somebody that has a restraining order, uh, against a person, and that person wants to find them or abuse that that ability to track, they could potentially start looking for an individual device and even do things like tell when that person was in a particular area just based on looking for that trackable signal. So MAC address randomization is pretty serious. Like it, it, it tries to solve a very easy to abuse problem with the way that phones look for Wi-Fi, I guess, and the way that it's implemented in how phones, I guess, implement that protocol. I guess what's interesting is some of your research doesn't just touch on the protocol itself. It's how it's, as you said, implemented. So here the flaw seems to be not in a WPA standard or something like this, but actually in the implementation of how the phone is looking for Wi-Fi. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. The problem is uh, how a phone searches for nearby networks. And this isn't just limited to phones. This is actually all devices that are looking for Wi-Fi too. Exactly. Uh, this includes your laptop and even your desktop if it has uh, Wi-Fi. So then now that we have MAC address randomization, does that mean that this problem is solved or are there still ways of being able to defeat MAC address randomization? Well, it's still not solved completely uh, because for example, Android, when they are now using uh, MAC address randomization, it's a bit harder to uniquely track your device. But these messages that your phone or laptop are constantly sending, they still contain some other data that still allows uh, an adversary or someone to track you. So it's become a bit harder to track people with MAC address randomization. But if MAC address randomization is not properly implemented, then it still becomes possible to use 
other information that are included in these periodically broadcasted messages to still track you. So in practice, not only do we need to use MAC address randomization, we also need to make sure that there is no other information contained in these uh, messages that allow you to track a person. Now, having dug into your research, I know that some of these are based on the fact that, and this blew my mind when I kind of learned it, that Wi-Fi isn't some monolithic standard that's just applied to devices that all works exactly the same way. Manufacturers are free to add in optional elements or choose to implement some of the required things, but not some of the optional things. And the result is a unique trackable signal that has certain timing features or certain optional uh data elements being broadcasted that are tied to maybe a specific type of software running on a specific type of hardware. Is that fair to say? Yes, exactly. So in a sense, when your device is looking for nearby networks, it sends a message uh, basically saying that, hey, I'm a phone and I'm looking for nearby networks. And by the way, these are all the features that I support. And generally, the features that a device support is fairly unique to uh, a certain brand of device. So this allows you to still uh, track the device based on what features uh, it supports. So that's a pretty big flaw. And it's also pretty interesting to note that Wi-Fi comes in different flavors, essentially, depending on which device is implemented on. But my favorite part of MAC address de-randomization is actually how stupid it is that your phone completely reverses all of the security as soon as you walk by like a Starbucks or like a coffee shop that you've been to before. Can you explain why MAC address randomization breaks when you walk by pretty much any Wi-Fi network you've joined in the past? Yes, so uh, one problem there is that MAC address randomization is only used when your phone is searching for a network. But once your phone or, again, your laptop or any Wi-Fi device in general will connect to a network, then it will switch back to using its uh, original real MAC address. And of course, an adversary can then uh, see the MAC address your device is using and it will still allow uh, the adversary to track you. So this this is quite a problem because as an adversary, we can set up these well-known networks that a lot of people connect to, for example, indeed a Starbucks network, and then the victim will still automatically connect to this network. It will use its real MAC address, and then you, you're still able to uh, track people. So I actually read this paper that you did this research in in a subway in Los Angeles, while I was doing some Wi-Fi research myself, and I was amazed to learn that this was possible. I, I frankly didn't believe it at first, and I had to find out for myself. So I collaborated with another researcher, Stefan Kremser, who was another guest on our podcast, to create a microcontroller version of an experiment that you did, in which you created a, a fairly limited amount of very, very popular Wi-Fi networks. And what you found was that it only took a couple extremely popular networks to unmask a large percentage of the devices nearby. So for a hacker or somebody looking to actively exploit this, it was pretty simple to create a number of fake networks. And then you didn't need that many of them, provided they were very, very common Wi-Fi networks that a lot of people had connected to before to unmask, I think it was like 70% or 80% or something like that of the, the wireless devices around you. Uh, yes, indeed. It's it's great that uh, you were able to replicate these uh, results as well. So I, I think it confirms that what we have seen, that if you broadcast only a few networks, say around five or maybe 10 networks, then you can indeed uh, basically de-anonymize on track, I would say definitely more than half of all devices uh, nearby. So this research, as I said, blew my mind. And I I wanted to see how far I could push it. So one thing that uh, actually you and I discussed when we met um, at, it was Black Hat? Did we meet at Black Hat? RSA? Yes, no, Black Hat. Uh, one thing we discussed was an experiment I had done where Stefan and I had used his beacon spammer, which is a ESP8266 microcontroller that sends out beacon frames that pretend to be a network you might have connected to before and started abusing it to basically brute force the preferred network list inside phones and, and basically take a poll of all the nearby devices presenting with a thousand different really common Wi-Fi networks 
uh, and seeing which ones they reacted to to get a statistical breakdown of what would be the most productive uh, Wi-Fi networks to fake in order to force all those devices to connect to us and basically hijack their data connection. So we wanted to take an active approach to this and, and use some of the research you had done to not only find out what the most reactive network would be to create, but effectively use Wiggle Wi-Fi to drive around a city, find the most common wireless networks, and then just simply put those names into the beacon spammer, generate a bunch of fake ones and see how many of the nearby devices were able to react. And I was blown away by the amount of information we were able to get about where people had been to, social groups they belonged to, employment that they might've had. We were able to even determine if people had been to a particular place just because we popped up the, the guest network. And if their phone reacted to it, we could tell that they'd been there. So the research really kind of spiraled and we, we went down a rabbit hole of suddenly not being able to just hijack someone's data connection or get them to reveal their MAC address, we were able to tell what church they were a part of. We were able to tell what school they went to. So this research has real, like really, really serious privacy implications because if you're like me and you just want to see how far you can push this, you can take a small flaw in MAC address randomization and use it to figure out, again, like a like an organization you've been to and a job you've been to. I teach journalists about how this flaw could inadvertently expose their sources who come in as whistleblowers and connect to the Wi-Fi network of the news organization. If they go back to their employer and they don't realize that their phone is now going to give up that information that could be a really serious problem. So all of these things are really critical for the average person to know about. But I feel like not a lot of people understand kind of this back and forth battle between people like yourself who are advocating for privacy and making these features secure, and then manufacturers who keep kind of breaking it inadvertently. Yeah, so I think it's indeed good for people to be uh, aware of all the things that in a sense happen without you knowing it. But I think that's that's actually currently a more general issue in technology, I would say that a lot of times there's a, some kind of feature that your phone or laptop supports, but you have no idea what really the privacy implications are. And here we're studying it specifically for Wi-Fi, but I'm afraid the situation where users don't really know the risk or what's going on, that it might occur in more cases uh, than we think. Um, one thing I also want to touch upon, uh, you mentioned that you used uh, wiggle data set to find out uh, common nearby networks and i think that's a very good example because even if we run this attack in a city we don't know we can find the most common networks that people probably will connect to just from online data sets so even if you want to find out the habits of a people in a country where you're not familiar with we can use online data to uh, still find this list of very common networks and to then attack the people there that uh, live there locally that's fascinating so this research has implications also in creating automated tools where you can scrape available data sets and come up with a device that would unmask most, most mobile phones that are moving around you in a particular city or in a particular region without needing to know anything in advance. That's a pretty big flaw in, in Wi-Fi. Yes, indeed. It really allows you uh, to do a lot. So, so yeah, what I do myself is I always turn Wi-Fi off when I don't need it. Um, on some devices, this will prevent you from being tracked. On some devices, however, even if you turn Wi-Fi off, your device will actually still be looking for nearby networks. So it depends. So one of my favorite things about your research is that you do not work with supercomputers. You don't work with million dollar budgets where you have some sort of unique device that nobody except you has access to. Virtually all of your research you can do with hardware that is available for like less than $100. And that to me really makes your research relevant to the average person because when people think of researchers, they might think of someone in a lab with like limitless resources working with things that they would never have access to. But when I read your papers, you are working with the same wireless network adapters and some of the same stuff that I work with. So that's really cool. And I think a lot of your stuff is accessible to the average person, which is why this research is important. Can you tell me a little bit about the research you've done with commodity hardware, uh, specifically with using wireless network adapters to abuse the Wi-Fi standard? Yes, of course. Uh, so one of my research consists of uh, using commodity Wi-Fi devices to implement attacks that before that required more specialized hardware, because I wanted to be able to execute certain attacks without having to buy a lot of uh, expensive equipment and to see whether this is indeed possible. And 
essentially what I did there is I took a fairly cheap Wi-Fi dongle and I managed to turn it into a constant jammer, which basically sends out a constant physical signal, which disrupts the Wi-Fi for all nearby users. Now, I even extended this attack instead of simply jamming the signal for everyone. I also extended this very cheap commodity Wi-Fi device to only selectively jam certain clients. So the cheap Wi-Fi device is actually able to decode the MAC address in the beginning of a Wi-Fi frame, so essentially the identity of a user, um, to then jam the rest of the packet. And Previously, people thought that you really needed expensive equipment to do this because you need to do all these checks very fast and efficient uh, in hardware or using FPGAs and so on. But we managed to implement this using a commodity device. And yeah, now suddenly this attack was possible using more uh, cheap hardware. So there's beauty to this that I feel like I need to explain, because in electronic warfare, jamming has many different terms. And there might be some IT people or some hackers who are like, I know about jamming. And you're thinking about deauthing, sending deauthentication packets, and that is absolutely not what this is. Matthew's solution is to go into the wireless network adapter, mess with the firmware, and start abusing the actual protocols so that he can have access to the low-level device that's actually running the radio, and basically listen for and then jam, actually send out a signal that will interfere with the reception of certain packets to make it absolutely impossible for certain devices to transmit over Wi-Fi. So if you're a systems administrator or you're, you're someone who's trying to figure out what the hell is going wrong on your network because suddenly nothing is, is working, Matthew found different ways of abusing these standards to make it so either every device thinks that there's constant traffic and is always holding its breath, waiting for its turn, or that just basically like all the, the little things that Wi-Fi has to do in order to work, Matthew has find ways to break them and make it so that somebody trying to look for deauthentication packets or find out why the network has suddenly ground to a halt would basically have either complete silence or just corrupted packets over the air and no idea why this was happening. Yes, exactly. That's a very good description. So this also extends into, and, and sorry to paraphrase this, being a real dick when it comes to taking up network resources. I understand that you're also able to abuse this to get really fast speeds at the expense of virtually anybody else on the network. Yes, indeed. So one thing that Wi-Fi does is before it will transmit a packet, it will first see if someone else is transmitting. And if no one is transmitting, then fine, your device can simply send uh, the data, the packet, but if your device is sensing that someone else is transmitting data, then it will first wait until this other device finished transmitting. And then it will wait a random amount of time. So all Wi-Fi devices, at least the ones that follow the standard, they will pick a random number and then wait that amount of time. And then the idea is that eventually everyone gets a fair shared a fair share of the available airtime. But I modified these devices to not pick a random waiting device. I simply modified them to just instantly transmit when the other person is done. And that way, I can always, in a sense, win this race. So after someone else is finished transmitting, the device that was transmit for first is normally the one that picked the lowest random number. But yeah, I modified my device and my device always picks the lowest random <laughs> number. So my device is always the one that transmits first. And yeah, this allows me to access the internet while the people around me, because their devices are following the standard, they're essentially waiting for me to stop transmitting. That's incredible. So by going into the way that Wi-Fi actually works, you were able to just delete kind of the, the safety standoff feature that allows devices to behave fairly. So by making your device stop playing by the rules, you've made it so that now you get preferential access to all the airspace. So basically you get access to the internet first and then everyone else around you gets to fight for it fairly. Yes, indeed. Um, one thing that is also important to remark here is that you're able to modify the client but we're not able to modify the access point. So even though this attack sounds very cool, and I think it is, I think it's still important to know that we cannot influence how the access point is implementing the standard. So when we are downloading a file and the access point is sending a lot of 
data to us, then unfortunately we cannot heavily influence the access point on downloading a file will still be at the normal speed. But if we are uploading something on our device is the one sending something, then we can really increase our speed. So our upload speed, we can increase it twofold, maybe even threefold. The download speed, we can increase it a bit, though not as much. Okay, so all the systems administrator people who thought they knew about Wi-Fi jamming in the beginning are probably terrified now that this could happen on their network. So if you were an IT person, or let's say that you were in charge of a network, is there any way that you would be able to spot this kind of either selfish behavior or this sort of interesting jamming that's more based on deleting the timing element than actually sending disruptive packets? So I'm not completely up to date whether devices uh, implement something to detect this. I've heard of cases where certain more professional access points have functionality that uh, at least allegedly can detect this kind of uh, unfair behavior. So I would say double check if the professional access points support it. They might, though I don't have experience with them. And a more basic way to check this would be to yeah, see if someone is using a lot of bandwidth on your network and then investigate it further. Uh, but it can be uh, tricky to detect. So that is a lot of problems all packed into a pretty narrow set of hardware for us to exploit. So it doesn't take much for us to really be able to start abusing this. I think most of these wireless network adapters cost like 40 to $60. But there's another attack against WPA2 that is pretty famous and a lot of people actually might have heard of that's a little bit more out of the reach of the average beginner. Can you explain a little bit about the crack attack and what it means? Yeah, so the crack attack stands for the key reinstallation attack. Um, at a high level, when you're using a cryptographic protocol, you're only supposed to use a, a key once. Um, if you use a key multiple times, then cryptographic protocols tend to break down. Um, unfortunately, in the crack attack, this is exactly what we were able to do. Namely, we were able to force a victim into reusing, into reinstalling a cryptographic key. And when in the WPA2 protocol, the key is being reused, an adversary can then try to decrypt data that a victim is sending. And depending on the specific configuration of the network, it might even be possible to uh, inject data ourselves. So summarized, in the crack attack, we can reinstall a key and practice, this is bad. And for example, we can use it to decrypt data that is being sent. Now, one thing that interested me about this attack was it got a ton of press when it came out because it has such wide implications. And it also affects people who are business users, who are enterprise people who are relying on their data connection being secure. And I think a lot of people misunderstood this because people interpreted this as, oh, it's like getting a password. Or they thought that in some way it was leaking the Wi-Fi password. But that's not the case here, is it? Yeah, indeed. So... The attack doesn't leak the password, and it applies to essentially every encrypted uh, network. So the key that uh, we're referring to here in this attack is a key that is used underlying in the underlying protocol, but it's not the password. So it's not the password that's being reinstalled. It's the key, and this key can in home networks be derived from the password, but in enterprise networks, this key is derived from something else. And yeah, in any protected network, this key uh, could at the time be reinstalled. Uh, so any Wi-Fi network was potentially vulnerable uh, at that time. So in layman's terms, then, this doesn't give you the ability to join the network, and it doesn't give you the ability to get the password, but it does give you the ability to intercept information on the network and even potentially inject information into the network that could influence how it behaves. Yes, exactly. That's a good solution. So exactly how would someone detect this sort of attack, or how would they know if they were being targeted with it? Or is there any way at all of knowing that? So there are now certain uh, intrusion detection systems that are able to detect this attack because the system can see when a certain message, a certain Wi-Fi frame is being retransmitted. And this allows them to detect if this uh, attack is going on. So you can look at uh, tools to uh, detect uh, the attack in that way. 
And what kind of hardware would it take to pull this sort of attack off? Is it expensive or is it out of the reach of the average person? So I would say the hardware is not really a problem. You can use cheap uh, Wi-Fi dongles to pull off the attack. I think the, the main obstacle would be to have a reliable implementation of the attack. So you made a proof of concept that shows the attack worked against our specific devices. But making a fully reliable and practical implementation of this attack, I think that's actually the hardest step. And I think the hardware requirements, well, if you buy two or three Wi-Fi dongles, which may be $20 each, you would already have the, the equipment to pull off the attack. So a well-resourced organization, uh, like a nation state or whatever, would definitely have the ability to do this easily using this sort of flaw. Yes, exactly. I think they would definitely be able to uh, pull it off. I guess the only question is uh, whether they're motivated enough to implement it uh, or they always try to find the easiest way in. So it depends what for them is the easiest way in. It might be that the victim that they're after is vulnerable to uh, maybe some kind of buffer overflow and they don't need to implement these kinds of attacks. But if they, if there's no other vulnerabilities, then I think they can definitely pull off uh, this kind of attack. So, for example, with a, an enterprise client or, or somebody somebody who's really using this to keep absolutely critical data secure, is this should they just not be using Wi-Fi at this point to be transmitting information that might be damaging if it were intercepted that's not being used via a VPN or something like that? And, and to be specific, if someone were using a corporate VPN, would they still be at substantial risk uh, with this sort of issue? So if you use a VPN, you, of course, have an extra layer of security, and uh, that's always a good thing. Though one thing I that does make me think of is that not all VPNs are created equally. So even if you are using a VPN, you have to make sure it's secured properly. And you know, if you don't have access uh, to a VPN, then if you currently use WPA2 with a strong and unguessable password, and if you have updated your device to prevent the crack attack, then at least based on what we know currently, you're safe as well. So I guess the message here is if you're still stuck with using WPA2, then make sure your device is updated and make sure you use a password that cannot be guessed and cannot be brute forced. And yeah. As an extra layer of security, you can also add a VPN on top. That segues excellently into my next question, and you probably actually answered a lot of it. But have there been patches applied for the attacks that we've talked about, some of the attacks we've talked about today? And how can people who use Wi-Fi, which is probably everyone, keep ourselves safe from the kinds of advanced attacks that you're talking about? Yeah, so in the case of the crack attack, as you mentioned, it's got a lot of attention. And this is one reason why a lot of people updated their devices. And if we look at, for example, uh, Windows, it is now updated against it, meaning the attack is prevented. Same for Apple devices, they are protected. If we look at Android, the recent devices, they're protected as, as well. Now, if you have an older uh, smartphone or an older Android that hasn't been updated in a few years, then you're still at risk. But I would say if you use a modern and updated device, then most of these attacks are prevented. And that even includes the, the topic we talked about earlier, so the MAC address randomization. We still discovered an attack there that could bypass MAC address randomization, but manufacturers are now also trying to prevent these additional ways to bypass MAC address randomization. So yeah, we have a bit of the, the usual takeaway message here, which is, update your devices. I know the advice is uh, repeated a lot, but it yeah, it, it re it's really important and it uh, really does help. And in terms of just best practices, when you're walking around with a mobile device, if you don't want to be tracked, what would you recommend? Just turning Wi-Fi off? Or would you also recommend taking the additional steps of doing things like turning off the location data services that use Wi-Fi as a point of reference for locating where you are? Yeah, so I myself always turn uh, Wi-Fi off. It's it's basically become a habit. You can do that to prevent uh, you from being tracked, or you can also do it to save your battery life a bit. But like you already hinted at, sometimes simply turning Wi-Fi off is 
not enough to prevent your device from being tracked. Because even if you turn Wi-Fi off, a lot of mobile, a lot of mobile phones will still have the Wi-Fi chip enabled because they are still searching for nearby Wi-Fi networks to do what is called uh, Wi-Fi uh, geolocation. In other words, say your GPS isn't on or isn't working, then in the background, your phone is looking for nearby Wi-Fi networks and it uses these nearby Wi-Fi networks to try to determine your location. So in general, if you want to prevent yourself from being tracked, you indeed need to turn off your Wi-Fi and you need to turn off uh, these localization services because otherwise your Wi-Fi chip is still running and you're potentially still being tracked. So I have a little story regarding that where one of my hobbies, and this is totally normal, is looking at really excellent and documenting really excellent free dump and storm drain tunnels. And the other interesting thing about storm drain tunnels is that it's a radio isolated environment. So while it might be very difficult to track exactly what signal is coming from what device in an area like Los Angeles, where I live, where there's tons of radio devices all around, I was able to study how radio devices like smartphones behave in a completely isolated environment. And I was really surprised while doing some of this research to find that especially older Android phones, even if they've been updated, don't seem to implement Mac address randomization in the probes that they send out when you turn off Wi-Fi. So if you turn off Wi-Fi and your phone is looking for its location by and, and has advanced uh, geolocation enabled, it actually sends out trackable probe frames that allow me to see the manufacturer of the device as well as a consistently trackable Mac address. So when I was doing this research, I was, you know, being like, guys, turn off your turn off Wi-Fi. And they're like, our, our phones, the Wi-Fi says it's off. And I'm like, okay, well, turn on airplane mode. And finally, when we turned on airplane mode and turned off the location services, finally, all of the signals ceased. But up until that point, all of their phones were still trackable, which again, when I thought that when I turned Wi-Fi off, I was disabling the wireless radio for the Wi-Fi chip. That is not the case. So people need to understand, if you think that you're turning off your Wi-Fi when you turn off your Wi-Fi, there are still additional services that can use that. And it is essentially giving a lot of control to open yourself up to being tracked to allow those services to continue to run if you've made the decision that you want to turn your Wi-Fi off. So it's a little bit misleading, I think, for manufacturers to have that big button that says it's turning Wi-Fi off, when in fact, it's not really turning the Wi-Fi off. So yes, that's a very good point as well, because... I also don't think it's the fault of the user here because they are turning off Wi-Fi. So then it's also pretty normal to expect that your Wi-Fi chip is off. But interestingly, yeah, your device is still actually using Wi-Fi. So I, I think it's indeed quite misleading how it's uh, currently implemented. So not to scare anybody too much with all of this, there are some bright parts to this. And that is, in particular, that there's a new standard of Wi-Fi coming out that is supposed to address a lot of the problems here that we have discussed that don't have you know, major fixes because they're just kind of flaws in the protocol. So one big flaw of WPA2 that we haven't discussed yet is, well, I guess I did kind of hint at, is deauthentication, And this is something that's been known for quite some time. The ability to kick anybody off of a network is a really big deal because you can't just you know, run into an office and start you know, whacking Ethernet cables with a machete without somebody noticing what you're doing. But you can do the equivalent of that with Wi-Fi pretty much at any time currently. And that's not something that most businesses, unless they've implemented uh, something like protected management frames, uh, which is not very common, really protect against. Can you explain what that flaw is and, and why it's so impactful? Yeah, so currently in, uh, for example, WPA2 networks, it's very easy to forcibly disconnect a client. And this is called uh, the deauthentication attack. So yeah, the way this uh, attack works is that an adversary can spoof the so-called uh, deauthentication message that an access point normally sends to a client to essentially throw this client off the network. And this is because this message is uh, not protected uh, at all. So an adversary can easily spoof it. And when a client receives this deauthentication message, then the client will just believe it and it will think, oh, the access point is uh, throwing me off the network, so I will disconnect from it. And if an adversary keeps doing this, yeah, the client won't be able to successfully connect anymore to a Wi-Fi network. And 
One case where this uh, has a real practical impact is if you, for example, have a Wi-Fi security camera or some kind of security sensor, then an adversary is able to carry out this deauthentication attack where you send deauthentication frames to uh, a Wi-Fi device to forcibly uh, disconnect the device from the network. And, yeah, if you have a security camera, this can be a very big problem because you will lose your video feed or if you have some kind of remote sensor, this means the sensor is temporarily disconnected. So these are cases where this attack can have a big practical impact on indeed you need to be very aware that this can happen. So I've seen businesses that accept uh, credit card payments on like mobile tablets and other sorts of things that use Wi-Fi and don't have a backup cellular connection that would be extremely vulnerable to this sort of attack. And everyone should be aware of how easy it is to do this. I, I literally taught a class yesterday in which we were demonstrating how with a $2 ESP8266 microcontroller, you can basically spoof these messages and disconnect any device from any network. And you can either be disruptive where you're attacking you know, literally anything that's transmitting near you and create a blackout zone where Wi-Fi just basically can't connect, or you can target an individual device on an individual network and only like take out like a Wi-Fi security camera or a printer. So this attack is really, really useful to hackers because it allows you to arbitrarily take out a device, several devices, or an entire network. And the cost for doing this is about $2 at this point. Yeah, I think it's an important remark also that uh, indeed this attack is uh, very cheap because you know, in a sense, an adversary can also always buy some special equipment to simply physically jam all the signals nearby. But what makes the authentication attack special is that we can use it using very cheap hardware that also doesn't require much power. So you can use one of these cheap devices. You can attach a cheap small battery, and that already gives you a power to do a lot. Now, the other thing that is really problematic about WPA2 is what happens when a device that's been kicked off the network is rejoining it. Now, of course, this also happens naturally whenever you're kind of coming up to a uh, network you connected to before and your phone decides to join it. The information that's exchanged can be captured and used to attack the password if it is a weak password. But really, the problem is that with this deauthentication attack, hackers can generate this handshake whenever they need to. So provided someone or something is connected to a Wi-Fi network, you can basically kick them off for just a second. And rather than using the deauthentication attack to basically jam someone and prevent them from being able to connect or associate with the network, instead, you can use it to generate the information you need to attack a weak password. And this is a big deal because people are lazy and they often reuse passwords. The hackers have gotten really good at going after the low-hanging fruit. And on some of the cracking services I've used that are free and community-based, if you upload, uh, let's say, 10 handshakes from the local area and get back the results of which ones are using maybe the, the top million weakest passwords, you'll get maybe a 60% result of being able to crack handshakes that are just recorded randomly from networks nearby. So by and large, my research has shown that people pick bad passwords. So the ability to arbitrarily look and see if someone is using a bad Wi-Fi password by just disconnecting someone, capturing the handshake, and then trying to crack it makes WPA2 problematic for people who aren't taking using password security really seriously. Yes, yeah, so that's uh, indeed a known flaw of, of uh, WPA2, where if an adversary is able to capture the handshake, then the adversary can take these captured messages offline and then try to guess uh, a lot of passwords without being near the network. So you can take all this data offline. You can then, for example, use very powerful GPUs to test very large dictionaries of passwords and to then try to find uh, basically the correct uh, password and uh, break uh, the encryption, essentially. And this is quite easy to do I, because a lot of people either will reuse a password or they'll pick a very simple password that's easy to remember. And because people don't treat this essentially like the key to their front door, they will pick something that is more convenient than it is secure. And all this fancy encryption, all this protection that WPA2 is trying to afford your connection is pretty much negated 
Because if somebody can grab that handshake and crack your super weak, stupid password that's easy to remember, it means they not only have access to the contents of your communications, with the exception of that are protected by SSL or a VPN, but they can also begin to directly access your devices. So it's like being you know, plugged into an Ethernet connection where you can start to scan the network, you can see what's connected, see what ports are open, see if any devices are running a vulnerable uh, version of software you know how to exploit or there's a known exploit for. So once someone gets into your Wi-Fi network, they can basically start knocking on the door of all of your internet connected devices. And this is a really big deal because a lot of people never bother to do things like change the router password because they never think that someone's going to get in there and have the opportunity to try admin admin. And if your router password is admin admin, please go change it now. But the problem is if you also picked the Wi-Fi password of like pencil 123 or password 123, someone is going to be able to get into that because it is so simple to audit for these sorts of things nowadays that when I am doing a Wi-Fi engagement, I am not you know, simply grabbing one Wi-Fi handshake. I'm grabbing any handshake from the area around me that is within scope. And I'm just auditing for the lowest hanging fruit. I'm looking for someone to pick a stupid easy password that gives me access to the network so I can start doing more nefarious things once I'm inside. So this isn't just about someone you know, getting a free ride on your Wi-Fi. It's about them accessing your router, maybe choosing to administer it remotely and then paying, charging people on the internet to route stolen credit cards through that connection. This, these sorts of things happen. And for example, I believe it was in Seattle, there was a ring of people who were going around cracking Wi-Fi passwords uh, and abusing Wi-Fi security to get into people's routers and setting them up as these uh, access points where they were sending illicit traffic for stolen credit cards and all these other criminal activities. So these owners of routers, a lot of them were like small businesses or just individuals were raided by the police or like otherwise, you know, were contacted by the police about all the suspicious traffic coming from their network. But it was a result of just this flaw being exploited in the wild. Yes, indeed. So uh, th th this flaw has a real practical uh, impact uh, as well. So fortunately, though, there are some fixes on the horizon. What are the fundamental differences in the next generation of Wi-Fi when it comes to the problems that is trying to fix with security? So here, the upcoming standard is, uh, of course, WPA3. And uh, this standard is trying to prevent these uh, attacks where an adversary can try to brute force the password in the way we discussed. So that's one major advantage of WPA3. An adversary is no longer able to record this handshake, but then take it offline to guess the password. The only way for an adversary to guess the password of a WPA3 network is to actually be physically close to the network and try to connect with the real access point. And the idea is that uh, actually trying to connect to the real access point, it takes time. You have to be physically close. And using this approach, you can only guess a low amount of passwords, a low amount of passwords in a given time. And that really protects uh, the password a lot better. A second advantage of uh, WPA3 is also that, uh, let's say that you learn someone's password, they maybe gave it to you or you managed to steal it or using some other way, then with WPA3, an attacker cannot go back in time on decrypt traffic that was, for example, captured a year ago. While with WPA2, that is possible. If you learn the password of a WPA2 network, then you can go back in time and also do decrypt all the old traffic as well. So that's called forward secrecy, I believe. And that's a major component of why WPA3 is more secure. Because not only is it less important for the password to be really, really, really uh, good, it also means that if someone were able to get access to the network or legitimately had access to the network via being given the Wi-Fi password, it, it wouldn't put the communications of other people on the network at as much risk. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I, I, you can indeed describe it like that. So this is a really good upgrade. One thing that I'm a little confused about, though, is the way that Wi-Fi is marketed. What are the technology people would look for if they wanted to make sure that an upcoming smartphone or an upcoming router that they're purchasing has this? Because I see a lot of marketing for Wi-Fi 6, and like I don't see very much marketing for WPA3. Is this something would, that people would need to look for specifically in a product, or is it something that's just being rolled out generally? Or how would people actually buy a product that supports this? Also, the idea there is that uh, the, the device needs to support WPA3. And you can generally find this on the specifications uh, of a new device, whether it supports WPA3 or not. Now, 
Fortunately, even older devices can be updated to support WPA3, although very old devices probably won't get these updates. But if you have a fairly recent phone, then I would expect the vendor to update it so it will support WPA3. So a lot of this is more of a software update than it is necessarily an update to the hardware or anything. So you don't need to buy a new phone necessarily in order to be able to use WPA3. You just need to keep it updated if the hardware currently would support it. Yes, I would say that's the case. I don't think the hardware requirements are uh, that much uh, stronger. I think the main thing, though, that will hold some vendors back is that actually implementing this for older devices on specifically for older uh, Wi-Fi radios that are internally used in uh, these devices, it may be quite a complicated process. So even though technically these older devices are perfectly capable of supporting WP3, I think because of the amount of effort it might still require of vendors, that not all devices will be updated to uh, support it, unfortunately. And then also when it comes to management frames, uh, the types of packets that are being sent to keep control over the network, let devices connect and disconnect, that was one thing that was unencrypted in WPA2. How has that changed in WPA3? Are we still able to do the the types of attacks that are maybe not against the password, but just disruptive to the network? Yeah, that's a good remark as well. That's another advantage of WPA3. Um, That is that if you are using WPA3, then the standard mandates that you must also use protected management frames. And here, protected management frames, it's a standard, it's a specification that also protects management frames. And in particular, it also defends against uh, the deauthentication attack that we discussed uh, earlier. Cool. Okay. So WPA3 is sounding pretty sweet. We can pick bad passwords and it doesn't have as much of an impact because the attacker isn't able to basically attack as often or use the same sort of offline attack technique. And then we can also give someone a password without needing to worry about them decrypting our past traffic or uh, have them intercept traffic from other people on the network. And then in addition to that, we don't need to worry about somebody kicking all of our devices, for example, a critical device off the network. So that might allow us to use Wi-Fi in devices that otherwise wouldn't be safe or practical to use. That sounds pretty good. Is there anything that I should be worried about with WPA3 or is it perfect? Yes, that's a good question. Unfortunately, WPA3 is not perfect. There seems to be a bit of a habit of there always being an issue with new standards, at least with, with Wi-Fi. That's good. It keeps us employed. Yes, yes. Uh, certainly creates some work on, uh, yeah, again, things to fix. So to explain what, what went wrong there is that WPA3 is supposed to prevent an attacker from taking a handshake that he or she captured and then taking it offline to then try to guess the password purely based on the frames on the handshake messages that they captured. The problem here is we found a flaw that still allows an adversary to do these very efficient offline guesses against the password. And specifically the flaw that we discovered is called a side channel attack. And to give a high level description, based on how long it takes for, uh, for example, an access point or a client to respond to certain messages of the WPA3 handshake, the time it takes the device to respond, it leaks certain information about the attacker. So what I can do is I can go near WPA3 network. I can try to initiate a lot of WPA3 handshakes. And these handshakes will fail because I don't know the password. But the access point, it will reply to the very first message of the handshake, or at least your client will reply to the very first message of this handshake. And then by taking a lot of these timing measurements, we can then process these timing measurements and use this information to try to brute force the password offline. But essentially, we get the same vulnerability as we have with WPA2. If you pick a weak password, an adversary can do, for example, timing attacks, and they can then take this information offline to try to brute force uh, the password. So that's not good. Are they going to do anything about that? I mean, that sounds that sounds terrible. Yes. Yeah, so I think there are some 
positive aspects here as well. I would say the first is that even though this attack is possible, it's harder to perform than compared to existing attacks of WPA2. Because with WPA2, it's very easy to capture the handshake message because you had this deauthentication attack, which simply triggers a new handshake. And then it's very easy to do all the attacks. At least with WPA3, even if your implementation is unpatched, at least the attack is harder. Now, apart from that, the Wi-Fi Alliance, it, they did release certain security guidelines on how to implement WPA3 in a more secure manner. And I think because we found these flaws quite early, I'm quite hopeful that all vendors will now implement these countermeasures. So I think that in practice, it will be hard to pull off these attacks because most people will have already patched them. Now, unfortunately, these defenses that uh, are recommended, they are quite costly and there is a defense, but they are costly in the sense that they require a lot of computation time. And this poses a risk to resource-constrained devices. For example, if you would have a very cheap IoT device, and if it would support WPA3, then it won't be able to fully implement these uh, backwards-compatible countermeasures. So even though I think powerful devices can implement WPA3 in a secure way, the lightweight devices, they are still at risk because they cannot fully implement all the necessary countermeasures. Even for devices with a little bit more processing power, I really like that this opens up another attack that was previously ruled out by the way that WPA3 operates. You mentioned that the fix for this is a computationally expensive process. And one thing I'm particularly interested in, and once WPA3 is out and I'm able to test it a little bit more, that I want to kind of try is finding out whether or not we can do a basically a denial of service attack that you described by just hitting it with so many requests that by trying to obfuscate what it was leaking before, it ends up just using so much processing power that it kills the connection and it's not able to function at all. Can you describe how a denial of service attack would work with a updated version of WPA3 that's trying to prevent the timing attack you described? Yes, indeed. This is uh, one point we also noticed against uh, certain early implementations of WPA3. And what we found there is that an adversary can initiate a lot of concurrent handshakes uh, with, for example, an access point, so with a Wi-Fi network. And if they are implementing this backwards compatible countermeasure, then the access point will do uh, a lot of work in all these uh, handshakes that we are trying to initiate. And even though we as an adversary, we may not know the password, we can still initiate the first part of the WPA3 handshake. And this first part will in a sense, force the access point to perform these very costly computations in order to prevent any kind of leakage. And what we found there in practice is that if we, uh, against certain professional access, point, access points, if we initiate, say, 10 handshakes per second, then this is enough to cause 100% CPU usage on the access point that we are targeting. And this would mean that other clients would no longer be able to use WPA3. So it's indeed quite a practical risk that we have that this countermeasure can be abused in a denial of service attack to then prevent other users from using WPA3. This is pretty fascinating to me because in the end, you have pretty much the same result. Suddenly the Wi-Fi cuts out and it would be difficult to understand why for a layperson this was happening. But the, the actual cause of why this is happening in WPA2 versus WPA3 is different. In WPA2, you have unprotected management frames that can basically be used to spoof and kick anybody off the network. Whereas with WPA3, there's no gateway to initiate this incredibly computationally expensive process that's supposed to hide all this information and, and prevent leaks. So you can just continuously connect because you don't need to prove that you know the password in order to kick off these uh, processes inside the router. And if you spawn too many of them, and, and 10 seems like a very low number, being able to effectively freeze up all the router's resources pretty much has the same effect. You know, you can't use the router, the, the Wi-Fi stops working, and you might even be able to freeze the connection of like a security camera or something critical using this sort of technique. Yes, indeed. Um, to come back to one of these remarks, 
We indeed found that in certain cases, uh, spoofing 10 connection attempts uh, was sufficient. Although we can defend a bit against it, we can change the configuration of the access point so that the adversary would need to initiate, say, 60 connection attempts per second. But still, this is a fairly low number in practice. Right. And most routers are trying to be efficient. They don't have a ton of processing power on board because that's not really what they do. So targeting the device that's administering the network in this case with an attack that uses up computational resources is a pretty efficient way of going after the network. Yes, indeed. I would say so as well. So while it looks like things are about to get a lot better with Wi-Fi, it looks like we also still need to be careful. There's real reasons why picking a strong password and why also making sure you don't have devices that are absolutely critical on Wi-Fi is something you need to be aware of if you are a business or even an individual that's looking to keep their information secure. I guess one question I have is I've always been interested in Wi-Fi and it's something that as a security person, like I've just naturally gravitated towards for a lot of the same reasons as you, but I never really understood how to get started until I just dove in. How would you say someone might get started finding flaws in Wi-Fi and is there some sort of bug bounty program or some sort of way for them to contribute if they're poking around and start finding issues or start finding interesting things they want to share with the community or fix? So I would think that uh, one way to get started with uh, Wi-Fi security uh, in general is to look at some of the existing attacks and try them uh, at home against your own device. But I think here, if I can mention it, the, the things you are doing where you are creating certain challenges where people can try out Wi-Fi attacks against a test setup, it's very interesting to do these kinds of uh, experiments on to do these kinds of challenges to get an idea of how the attacks work. And in order to really be able to do research on Wi-Fi security, you shouldn't limit yourself to simply being able to perform an attack on being able to run a tool. You also need to really try to understand how the attack works. And you can, for example, try to uh, implement the attack in your own tool and to then see how it works. And you can try your own little experiments as well. And yeah, finally, if you want to find really new flaws in uh, Wi-Fi and, for example, try to find flaws in the standard, that's, of course, more difficult and it requires a lot of expertise. Though I would say if you're interested in that, maybe doing a PhD is uh, one option. And yeah, you're always uh, welcome to contact me. Uh, maybe we can have some uh, position open if that might be an option. Other than that, I think one aspect that you mentioned is are there bug bounties uh, as well? And this depends a bit on the type of flaw you discovered. So let's say that you find, for example, a more classical buffer overflow that is uh, exploitable through Wi-Fi or by uh, sending some specially malformed Wi-Fi frames. But I think there are some uh, bug bounties for certain companies that you can uh, look for. Uh, so that's definitely an option. I think if you are, find a design flaw that is where not where more than one company is affected, these kinds of bug bounties are more rare. But if you find a, I would say, more traditional attack against a device that supports Wi-Fi, then I would definitely see if this uh, if this company has a bug bounty uh, program. And in certain cases, they do. So if somebody wanted to get started becoming a Wi-Fi researcher, what would you recommend they study or what areas would you recommend that they start buffing up their technical skills like uh, IT or computer science, something like that? So I would say a, a general knowledge about network protocols in general. So of course, I would learn about Wi-Fi and uh, try to get some book about it and try to read it to understand it. I would try some of the attacks and understand them as well. For example, you can first try some very well-known attacks against WPA2, but I would also look a bit more broader and I would try to understand how other network protocols work as well. For example, how does TCP, for example, work and what are known attacks against TCP? Because my experience is that sometimes attacks against protocol A, they might also apply to protocol B or a modified ID of the attack might apply to another protocol. So even if you're interested in uh, Wi-Fi specifically, I think it would also be useful to just learn about network security in general and just learn about uh, security in general.
I agree. And honestly, for me, I've been interested in Wi-Fi for a very long time, but it was only when I took, I, I think it was a, a routing and switching class, that I began to learn much more about the way that networks were administered, how they were constructed, and how a lot of the underlying packets were working. Because you know, there's so much you can learn about this. It can You can learn about the computer science aspect. You can learn about how the network protocols work and how they can be abused. Because all different levels of this protocol and the security inside of it can be manipulated or abused or, or tweaked. And it really depends on what skill set you have and what type of interest you have in working with Wi-Fi or communications as to which one you're going to gravitate towards. Yes, indeed. So I would say you can even follow courses that aren't specifically about security, but simply about how their things work in general. Um, you know, the better you understand the system, the better you're also able at finding flaws to attack it. For example, you can follow a standard course on uh, some kind of IT topic or network uh, topic. And then when you learn about a new protocol, you can always ask yourself, okay, can this feature be abused? Uh, if not, how do they defend against it? And yeah, just really learn things uh, in general. Awesome. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a lot uh, for us to go through, but it's incredible to learn about all the different aspects of Wi-Fi because it's something that it touches all of our lives. It's in the devices we use every day. And it's something that not many of us might have understood the limitations of and what exactly we're giving up in terms of privacy when we use it. How would people follow your research and keep up with you if they wanted to learn more? So I'm trying to be active uh, on Twitter. I don't tweet that frequently, but I do uh, tweet out if I have a new paper or a new result. So I think that's the main way to uh, stay up to date. I also have a website, which is uh, mativanouf.com, where I have a blog as well, although it's not updated as much. So I think the main way to stay up to date is to follow me on Twitter or to see whenever I publish the paper. And if you ever happen to be attending a security conference like Black Hat or something else that Matthew is speaking at, I, from personal experience, highly recommend checking out one of his talks. They're super interesting. So uh, yeah, thank you again so much for talking with us today. And I hope to talk to you again soon in the future. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Verona Security Tools podcast. Make sure to subscribe and check out our other podcasts. And if you want to learn more about what Veronis can do to keep your data secure, check out our CyberTalk workshop on the Veronis website. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.